Netflix is now releasing its viewing data. CEO Ted Sarandos tells us all about it. Also on this episode, for the final Mumbrella cast of 2023, we look at some of the biggest stories of the year. Welcome to the Mumbrella cast, a discussion of everything under Australia's media and marketing umbrella. For the final time of 2023, I'm your host, Neil Griffiths, the editor of Mumbrella, joined as always by Mumbrella publisher Adam Lang. Hello, Adam. G'day. And deputy editor Nathan Jolly. Nathan, How you going? I've got to apologise because we kind of gave you a send-off like two episodes ago saying we'll see you next year. That is true. I even said Merry Christmas, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> but because of this massive story that happened this morning, we had to bring you on. So if you haven't already checked out mumbrella.com.au, you were involved in a press call with the Netflix CEO, Mr. Ted Sarandos. I was, yes. So it was just the major media publications like New York Times, you got your Hollywood Reporter, you got your Wall Street Journal, you got your Mumbrella. Anyway, you know the types of ones I'm talking about, mm. the big swinging publications. The big dogs. The global leaders. Yeah, and so it's exactly what you said in the lead. Netflix are now making available all the viewing data for all the programs across the globe. And I had a look at the document this morning and it's quite a data dump. They're not making it easy for people to pull it apart and see what this actually means. It's in hours viewed. So it'll just tell you basically, like here's an example, Shrek, 48.1 million hours of Shrek was streamed in the first six months of this year. Now I'm a big Shrek fan. That movie's around about an hour 20. Adam, you're the numbers guy. What is how many times does that mean someone's watched Shrek? Forty-eight million. Let's say roughly thirty-five-ish million complete times. Wow. Wow. Sort of. Because when when it wasn't, and again, the story's on on the website right now. Um, the very vague description or summary is: Netflix has released viewing data for over eighteen thousand titles globally across the platform. Again, so Nathan, you were involved in this press call, um, which I'm I'm assuming was led by Ted. Yeah, it was led by Ted and it was very interesting the way they were framing it. So they were basically talking about transparency and about the fact that Netflix for many years, as everyone knows, they've kept their data very close to their chests. No one knows quite how many people are watching which shows. And then a few years ago, they put their top 10 lists. You might notice them if you use the menu, it will often have the top 10 across and that's regional. And that's more of the consumer facing thing. This is purely about transparency. They were saying it had the unintended consequence of making them seem a bit shady, in terms, like they were trying to hold something back from people. And yeah. So they're doing the exact opposite now and they have just released all the data and they were at pains to explain on this call that like Ted was saying that this is all about transparency, this is all about transparency, this is all about transparency. You mentioned in the story one of the things he said in the call this morning was it created an atmosphere of mistrust we all are Netflix subscribers, I'm sure. Um, do we think this is a good thing? Do we think this is a scary thing? Do we think this is even a relevant thing? Adam? I love it. I, I love the fact too that Ted Sarandos said this is the data they use to run the business. Yeah. So what we're getting is a glimpse in not just at the public-facing audience data but the stuff they use to make decisions. So you go, oh, that's, that's great insight. And, of course, I love data. <laughs> as unwieldy as a spreadsheet might be, I still like it. You know, so... The, the numbers are staggering. They are worldwide, right? So we don't get it from an Australian picture and it is for six months. So we're not getting it like daily ratings that we might see here. So it's not like we can feed that into daily TV ratings reviews and make a comparison. But how they come to make drama or make 
buying decisions for content, what is driving it, uh, and and really, I guess, to understand what's pushing audiences around the world, how does that reflect against what we think and what we understand about Australia? So your stat, Nathan, about Seinfeld season six. Yeah, 43.4 million 43.2 million hours of season hours, six of Seinfeld yeah. you've got here, yeah. Over yeah. the first six months of the year. And you've got to consider that's a 22-minute show, so that's over... 100 million episodes, mm. if you do the maths vaguely Including correctly. the credits. Yeah, including the slap bass. That's a lot of slap bass that people have listened to. <laughs> That's too much slap bass, actually. That's the real stat that we found here. <laughs> Who are the real winners here, though, Adam? Again, like when we when we talk about how many hours of Shrek or Seinfeld someone's watching, that, of course, is, is just a little fun fact. But who is this information really useful for? Who are the winners here? If you're a content creator, I expect you'd look at that. And, you know, if you're running a studio or commissioning drama, wanting to sell sport, whatever you're doing, I, I'd be looking at this list going, oh, that's interesting. What are the international habits that we're looking uh, looking through here for consumption of Netflix around the world? So I think it's, it's interesting indicators about content and what's working around the world and reinforced just like music, just like books, the hits just keep on giving, you know, <laughs> that, that Seinfeld is still giving with season six now, so many years after it stopped being made, people are still appreciating that show. So I think, I think it can show you about the long tail of consumption when you get a hit. So I think those are the primary sources. And if, if you're looking and say if you're at the government and you're going, hey, should Netflix be helping contribute to Australian productions or not? Uh, if you are really any one of the local uh, operators of visual content, what you're doing and how does that reflect against this? So I think there's just so many comparison points to, to gain insight from. Of course, I love this stuff. Mm. Um, Nathan, I want to come to you because you were one of few people who actually got to put a question to Ted. Yeah. Um, and again, you, you've mentioned here that the, the key for Netflix with this is the transparency. And I love this quote that I saw here from Ted where he said, we've always had this data, we're just sharing it now. I'm the co-CEO of a public company, so sharing bad information has consequences. Was he very considered in, he, in his call today or did he sound like incredibly confident, incredibly brash? He was, He it, it more seemed like he wanted to get across the fact that this is all about making people understand what drives their decisions as well. Because one of the questions that was posed to him was that, like, is this going to change how you commission programs? And he was saying this is how we've always, like this is the data we mm. use to run our company, as Adam said, and that was kind of his main point. We haven't mentioned yet, by the way, that the top show was The Night Agent Season 1, mm -hmm. and that had 812.1 million hours of viewing. Like those are insane numbers. Mm -hmm. If you're an advertiser, the global reach there is quite incredible. Like I, obviously they sell ads via region when they start selling ads, but... Just like if you want to break it down, I'm sure you can do math where you work out the percentage of viewers that are Australian. You can break it down. You could get at least a approximate kind of figure to base things on. I just think it's, yeah, this is a remarkable game changer because Disney Plus, Amazon, they're all like now people will be looking to them and going, what are your stats? Mm. Like show your cards. You mentioned Night Agent there again, 812 million hours. Is that right? Yeah. Ginny and George, season two, 665 million. Wednesday, season one, over 500 million. Bringing this back to a, a local angle and what's going on with, you know, all the Australian ratings and the TV systems, what do you think it means locally? I mean, it gives metrics for how 
big the local shows go internationally and how big the international shows are. So I suppose you could extrapolate. I mean, Adam, you're the numbers figure. What would you What would you take from this if you were? Yeah. So if I was a local producer, I expect in reverse. If I'm in a, rather than just saying looking at the international figures and international productions and what they reveal about worldwide consumption habits and maybe Australian habits, it's getting such great confidence from knowing that you can do it in reverse, as Fisk has done, or Colin from Accounts. Mm. Yeah that the, our content can go to the world in an entirely different way. I mean, we've got Rebel Moon, the Star Wars debut happening this week over in LA, mm-hmm. and there's Australian actors in that production. You know, So we know that we can compete internationally. I'd love to see it inspire and help inform how we can push more of our content around the world. Mm. Yeah, three Australian actresses are up for Golden Globes, which mm. were announced this week as well. Margot Robbie up for the big one. Like it's it's a very clear way to show our dominance on the world stage, which again will feed back into, as you said, like if we need more funding mm. for the arts, like this is a very good place to show these are figures. It's a data dump. So you can literally say 90 million people watched this show that mm. we produced in Rockhampton for this much money. That's yeah. a great return on investment. Yeah, well, I'm. I think the main thing here is that I'm very excited about is last week we spoke about that Elon Musk might not be attainable, but because you've now interviewed Ted Sarandos, I think Elon is on the radar. Yeah, he's on the first podcast back, actually, I believe. <laughs> That's an exclusive. Yeah, That's not so. an exclusive. Please take that with a grain of salt. Um, <laughs> as always, check out mumbrella.com.au for the full story. Uh, after the break, we're going to talk about some of the biggest stories on the Mumbrella website in 2023. Don't miss Mumbrella ComsCon on 27th of March, 2024 for an exclusive exploration of the future of PR and communications. Connect with peers, stay ahead of trends, and tackle challenges like AI, economic uncertainty, and crisis comms. Act fast, early bird pricing ends soon. Save your spot now. Book your ticket at mumbrella.com.au forward slash comscon. Welcome back to the Mumbrella cast with myself, Neil Griffiths, Adam Lang, and Nathan Jolly. Guys, this was meant to be the lead story of this final podcast for 2023, but because of the Netflix uh, call that Nathan had, we decided to leave with that. Now we want to come to uh, the top 15. So because it is Mumbrella's 15th anniversary, we thought we were going to do the top 15 for on the website. We've got news, we've got features and opinions. I want to just start with the top 15 news stories. Again, you can head to the Mumbrella website to check out the top 15 but I thought the three of us can kind of go through this list and pick out our favourites. So, Adam, I might start with you. You've got the number nine story. I'll just read the headline and then maybe tell us all about it. So, Coles replaces CMO role, appoints first chief customer officer. Yes, look, number nine is one of my favourite numbers, of course. <laughs> but this story, I think, touched not just this topic, that headline, but a few different strands that we've seen throughout this year. So, CMO, chief marketing officer. Uh, we've also seen more, I think, of chief customer officer coming in. And we often hear brands, companies talking about putting customers at the centre of everything they do. That fuels their business success. And so seeing a CMO evolve to a chief customer officer, sometimes the role has a CMO alongside it. Sometimes there's one role to cover both responsibilities. So in this instance, we saw that Coles appointed this year, 
its first Chief Customer Officer, Amanda McVeigh, to replace the position of CMO. So th this article was by David Chin, and I thought it touched on a number of really interesting things. One is the theme of companies putting the customer at the centre of everything they do. Second, the evolution of Chief Customer Officer role, either independent to or combining all the functions of marketing as well. So Chief Customer Officer, putting customers at the centre of everything you do and the evolution of marketers, brand marketers, marketing directors into that funnel, but also how we've seen them lead companies. So it, it hasn't perhaps been the most tried and tested route for brand marketers to be at the head of companies, but I think we're starting to see more of that. And I think we can see that as a theme that this is likely to continue and probably even grow. So it, it, it's something that really struck a chord with me around, yes, Coles, but also the theme of chief marketing officer versus chief customer officer and how that role can perhaps be a succession plan to lead companies overall. When you say you think this will be a theme, do you think this is something we're going to see a lot of in 2024 or is this a slow build? I think it makes sense. Mm. I think we do. We're, we've seen the beginnings of the theme and I, I think it will build. And, and like anything, it's not a straight line. Evolution is never just a smooth run. It goes in fits and starts, you know, so we'll see big brands make these decisions and then we'll see smaller brands do more like it. So I, I think we'll see a very stuttered growth in it over time. Yeah. Do you think we'll see their chief customer officer appear at the Senate next year? Well, <laughs> and why wouldn't we? You know, because the Senate loves love those media moments of provocative questions and the grab for the nightly news. We've seen it happen for dark reasons before, right? We've seen it happen when things go wrong. You know, the Senate wants to know, the Senate needs to know. And as with Optus, we could see them corral that mechanism really quickly. Within a matter of a week of the incident happening or the outage happening, we saw that call up pretty quickly. So it would be great to know too that perhaps the Senate is equally interested in great success stories that we might see a company going, hey, how did you do it? You know, what can we learn from it? That might be a bit too optimistic. <laughs> Well, moving on to, uh, I'll, I'll, do, I'll go with my story. This is the the sixth most read story in 2023. And I want to talk about this only a little bit because I was kind of shocked of how big this story was. So it was written by me. This is not why I'm doing it, I promise. <laughs> but And it was only last month as well that we reported this. So last month, Carlton and United Breweries, the hard solo alcoholic beverage, of course, the alcohol version of the soft drink we know as solo, it has to be renamed. The ABAC adjudication panel determined that the packaging of the drink had breached its responsible alcohol marketing code. So we kind of had a big discussion about this in the newsroom. I remember the morning it happened. Um, basically, it came after multiple public complaints that the brand name and the design of the can strongly appeals to minors. Adding on that, I think about a week or two later, it was reported that this hard solo was kind of the drink of choice at schoolies. And it was kind of the cool thing because it's solo, it's not real alcohol. Now, I obviously this is this is a problem, but because it's strictly sold in liquor stores, I thought, is it that bad as far as the selling and marketing of it goes? But Adam, you had a very different viewpoint. Yeah, look, the Great Australian Barbecue, you know, this tends to be one esky for all drinks, and you could have a real problem on your hands. It's easy looking at the two cans side by side to be mistaken, and so. Yeah, inadvertently, I think that's that's what's happened here. I don't think any brand went out, including Hard Solo, intending to cause harm or do something wrong. Of course, they didn't. But inadvertently, this is where it ended up. And you can see how, if you're looking and in, reaching into a can of drinks, an esky full of drinks, that you could be mistaken, and it could be a problem. So yeah, I, I think this one was almost inevitable. 
Yeah, and for people who are listening to this and think, well, I've still seen hard solo packaging, that's what I thought as well. But they actually have until the 9th of February next year to remove all packaging and marketing for it when, when it will be renamed as hard rated, not hard solo. Nathan, thoughts? I mean, Adam makes a good point. It's it's the the moments where it'll be some kid unwittingly drinking it. I don't think they're promoting it towards kids. I mean, I think if anything, it's unfairly fallen under this flavoured vapes scare that we're having at the moment where it's all like, it's aimed at kids, it's for kids, it's for kids. And then Solo is obviously delicious. It's also designed to slam down fast, which kind of goes against responsible drinking. I mean, I I personally don't have an issue with it. I thought Solo was actually the soft version of a vodka lemon, but... Is that is that not the case? Yeah, look, I, I was going to say, like, I don't understand why it's the the cho- the drink of choice for schoolies kids, but I come from the era where like vodka cranberries were the thing. That's yeah. kind of embarrassing to me. Yeah, well, I remember the Alcopop tax coming in, uh-huh. and it was because kids were drinking the guava flavored drinks and the ones that were nice flavored. Mm. So it was just to kind of put a price point between them. I mean, you, you're not going to stop kids from drinking, and when they drink, they're going to try to drink the stuff that tastes the nicest, mm. but. I do understand that there have been like 50 years of promotion behind Solo and so it's a brand name that they know and trust and that mixed with alcohol probably isn't the best idea. Yeah, that was the sixth biggest story of 2023. Nathan, your story is conveniently the top story for Mumbrella in 2023. I'll just say the headline and you can jump into it. Sean Cummins, colon, quote, I'm tired of people saying that working from home is better. It's not. Yeah, controversial. I mean, I agree with his sentiment where he was just sick of the people that just made these qualified remarks. Like they said, 85% of people prefer working (laughs) from home. Working from home is better. Like just this, it's better for people. It's better for mental health. And he's basically saying it's not. There should be a separation of home and work life. Younger employees that came up during COVID are missing the whole mentorship that happens at work. There's also a lot of jobs where you have to be there and physically see it done in order to ape it. You can't do it over the internet. So he does make a lot of good points. I think coming down hard on each either side misses the point of it. Like the point is that work can be done from home and it can be done successfully from home. It's not better. It's not worse. It's not less effective. It's not more effective. I mean, I would argue that people have completely different body clocks. So the time we start work should change. Like there's so many different, if before you talk about the geographical location, like there's so many other things that you can say, if you want to go, it's better or worse for someone. Like the city someone lives in makes their work life better or worse. Like there are so many factors to this. So I just don't think... It's a very simplistic argument from both sides, but, you know, people loved it on Umbrella. Mm. And just for context, this is the comments from the Cummins and Partners founder, Sean Cummins. Um, an interesting point he makes, my whole point is separate work from home. Now, yeah. um, personally, after COVID happened, I really enjoy the the balance of working from home and working in the office. And I mean, I say that as a journalist where Nathan, um, you can relate to this. If something breaking happens in the morning, back in the day, if I'm on the bus or the train, well, You'll just have to wait till I get there. Whereas during COVID, it could happen at 4 a.m. I remember I reported on Prince's death back in 2018, maybe 2019. Yeah. And it happened at 4 a.m. And for whatever reason, 
I kind of woke up and saw the story. I could write it immediately. So I do get that. But I'll go to the seasoned veteran. That's the last time I can say this in 2023. <laughs> Adam, what's your perspective of the work from home balance pre-COVID and now? I think um, there's terrific advantages to both. Right? And so personally, I advocate both, uh, what we're commonly calling hybrid working. Right? Mm-hmm. So, But I, I think everyone's situation has to come into it. For example, is it hot or cold? Does where you live have great heating or cooling to enable you to work better? Are you in a share house or a situation where your house is full of people and very noisy? Can you get the space mentally as well as physically to work as you need to? Um, the type of work you do obviously comes into it. So there's, there's so many things that come into it. How long is your commute to work? Like that's a trade-off. If it's an hour and a half to and from work, very different decision to whether you can walk to work, you know, whether you can ride to work, whether it's part of your fitness routine, whether it's part of your mental health just to walk and listen to music or podcasts or whatever. So I think it, it really is unique and I think I've probably wouldn't have recognised the benefits of it had we not had COVID, had we not had lockdowns and been forced to come up with alternative ways to work. So I think there are so many advantages to both and I, I send, tend to fall in the middle that a hybrid works best. And in that way, hey, if you're looking to employ someone, if someone has to completely change their travel routine, they have to really think about where they're working a lot. You know, if it's five days a week, whatever. But if they can go, no, I can just get onto my computer from home and do this work for that company who I really like and prefer, the barriers between changing employment to a better circumstance are fewer. And so I think it, it increases competition between employers for the best people. So I think there's a lot of advantages to it and I think we shouldn't lose it. I, I, I know that's very generalistic, but I don't think it, you know, either solution, home or, or work works absolutely for either one. I think it is a hybrid depending on role, depending on team function, et cetera. And work-home separation doesn't exist now that we have work emails and we have phones in our pockets. <laughs> like realistically, everyone is like, you know, expected to be somewhat on call, even if that's not kind of explicitly said. As you said, like when Prince died, I was the same. I had to report on that mm. as well. You just had to do it because it's like Prince is dead. You're not yeah, going to wait three hours story. and get onto that. You just have to do it. And so, I mean, again, we're journalists and news doesn't take a holiday. Nathan, I'm sure it's how Ted Sarandos felt when he knew you were coming on to the <laughs> yeah. call. It is the Nathan Jolly from Umbrella. <laughs> well, that, that's an interesting point, Adam, because I do want to ask you, We Nathan and I can relate to that from a journalist who you know, can work on a laptop anywhere in the world. It, with the amount of leadership positions you've worked in, let's say pre-COVID, let's say it's 2018 and your HR comes in and says, Adam, I've got a radical idea. We're going to work three days from home and two <laughs> in the office. That idea, would you have said, get out? I, well, I would have really struggled with it for certain roles. Mm. For example, if you're producing a television or radio show, recording a, an album, really hard to do remotely. You know, it's an ensemble production. Um, if you're in sales, absolutely. I mean, most great salespeople are out and about. You know, they are going to meet with people because that's when you can literally communicate everything. You get your body language, your nonverbal, your verbal communication, all encompassing. So I think there's certain roles to which it's naturally disposed. I would have probably struggled with it more until I'd seen it and Mm. been forced to see it and forced to do it. 
So I think we got an unintended great advantage out of those lockdown scenarios. Um, I do still really enjoy working in an environment with people in, in the same physical location. Now, th- some of the things like we've just recently done, we've had leadership sessions, training, that, that can work. But also, you just don't Zoom someone or do a Teams by accident. You know, I don't – if I bump into you in the hallway, mm. you know, we might have a conversation that we just would not have if we were doing working remotely. You know, same with you, Nathan. And I think for, for Team Fabric, it is really useful to live and work together for part of the time. So, yeah, I just don't think I would have recognised the benefits or how you can, how productive you can be without having been forced to. So to summarise, do we agree or disagree with what Sean said? I disagree. Yeah, I disagree. Well, that is the top story of Mumbrella in 2023. You can check it out on mumbrella.com.au. And again, we have the top 15 news stories. We've got the opinions and the features on the website. As of Saturday, they'll all be there for everyone to, to look at. But that about wraps it up for the year, everyone. I might hand over to the Mumbrella publisher. Any last words, Adam? Any nice 30-minute speech? <laughs> An unbroken 30-minute <laughs> speech. No, I'll spare everyone. Uh, it has been a fabulous year for me. Um, it's been a fabulous eight and a half weeks <laughs> as publisher at Umbrella. I think we are finishing in such great shape. And very excited about 2024. We've got so much coming in the way of great events, content, the way we're working together and engaging with the industry that I'm really passionate about. I think we are so often the best in the world and can do that more often. And I'd love it for Mumbrella to play its role more in doing that, in promoting the very best of work, provoking the best of work and and analysing it. So, no, it's been terrific. Thank you. How about you, Neil? Look, it's, it's been a crazy, I think this is episode eight or nine that I've been hosting. So it's, it's been a crazy few weeks, but like you, it's been a pretty fun time. It's been frantic and fast and a lot of F words, to be honest, but in a good way. Um, I'm very excited about what's to come in 2024. Um, I think we've got a great team here and we're very excited to hit the ground running next year. Um, Nath, I would pass it over to you, but you said Merry Christmas two weeks ago, so you don't get two of them. Can I make a prediction? Sure. Gladiators will be added to anti-siphoning list. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best way to wrap this show up. Thank you for everyone for listening. Uh, Have a Merry Christmas. Have safe holidays. We'll see you again in 2024.